0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a fireside chat from the IO360 2020 Summit, featuring cancer survivor Ariella Cheville, who walked the audience through her immunotherapy trial journey. Patient advocate Cindy Gagan moderated the fireside chat.
1: Good morning, everybody. So I am... Before we start talking to Ariella and thanking her for being here to share kind of the real world uh, story behind that video and all of her experiences, I thought maybe I'd introduce myself a little bit because I'm an old school cancer survivor. And in December, it'll be 25 years since I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, and I had the old-school treatment when there wasn't a lot of options. It was chemotherapy, and the trial was to give you as much as you could possibly tolerate without dying. I didn't opt for that, but I've seen a lot in uh, patient advocacy, and I've been involved with a lot of advocacy groups and supported lots of patients as they gone through treatment decision making, including signing up for clinical trials. So I know a lot about what people have to go through to actually get to the point that Ariella did. And I really want to kinda express the thank you of all of us for sharing your story and for being here and to tell us like it is because you, we've gotten the opportunity to talk, but it's really not as easy to kind of get into research. It's certainly not easy to have 14 different treatments, but it's to the research that you did. So maybe if you could just give us a little bit more behind the scenes of the story on how you got to that clinical trial.
0: Absolutely. And I just want to say thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to be here with you all. Um, you know, reflecting back on you know where I was, uh, when I, you know, initially learned about the trial, when I was initially diagnosed, to being here today and being able to talk with you all, you know, it's been a real journey. In terms of, you know, learning about that particular trial, you know, up, leading up to that point, I had already been on multiple clinical trials that I had learned about through um, the research hospital that I was at, um, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, um, and. I was very lucky that when I was diagnosed, you know, I happened to grow up outside the city. Um, Sloan was like a 45-minute, no traffic, uh, trek in. And I had a family friend who was able to get me in early uh, so I can get connected with the amazing oncologist that I still see today. I was also very fortunate that you know, I was going to school in Philly, um, attached to Ivy League school. that has most, one of the best nursing programs. Some of, some of my friends were going through and helped me um, do my neupogen shots uh, to keep things running while I was still on campus. Um and also has an amazing medical center that I could run to when I needed to get a blood test. I had a you know a fever when I was neutropenic and would have to go in the middle of the night instead of going to, you know, one of my you know spring formals or something. So there were a lot of different factors that enabled me to you know navigate and successfully receive different treatments and then ultimately, you know, learn about the different trials I ended up participating in. In this particular trial, I happened to learn about it because I was in the hospital at that point. I some months prior, I had almost died. Uh, my body had started to lose the ability to, you know, process things out. I was rapidly gaining fluid and I was incredibly weak. I was on a ton of paid medication. And we used our last gun. We used CMOP, which, you know, one of those old-school chemo regimens that was kind of our our last shot at um, nailing this. It released in the tumor burden for some time. Um, I started to feel a little bit better. But then... Excuse me.
1: That wasn't on a trial, though. That was... That
0: was not on a trial. Uh, So I... Over The four to the 14 therapies were a mix of, you know, chemotherapies, radiation, uh, different targeted therapies, uh, mostly through trials. And then, again, this once I exhausted all those options, there was CMOP. And then, when that stopped working, immunotherapy. So I learned about it when I was in the hospital. The cancer had started growing back um, when I was in there for surgery. And my oncologist came to my bedside. And again, he had early access to this trial because he was, it was being hosted at the research hospital. Um, he was close with the, the primary oncologist who would be coordinating it and they had just opened up recruitment. So it was a phase one. It was a phase one. And at that time you'd been in three
1: other trials, Oh my
0: goodness.
1: but they weren't yeah. phase one. So it so th- was phase one. I mean, I guess at that, and you could talk a little bit about the experience about a patient making a decision to enter a trial like a phase one, it's said that it's options, but was that explained to you, like what exactly you were consenting
0: to? Yes, but I think it also helped that at point, at that point, I had learned about the different phases and learned about some of the risks. At that point, I had had to make so many decisions on trials. I had made a little decision matrix for myself that included like, what's the risk of being in a phase one versus phase two, the distance, the drug delivery mechanism. Like, do I want to be in a city or do I want to go in the middle of nowhere? And that would help me evaluate the, the different drugs that I was on. So I fortunately had developed a much higher degree, I think of like health literacy at that point than the average person does to, you know, having a fantastic care team who would explain these things to me and listen to my thousands of questions. My parents who were studious note takers, made giant binder, Um, and again, having the opportunity to digest and be able to read and interpret a research abstract. Um, But I would say for this phase one trial, again, being in a position where I had exhausted all of my options, it was very much a life or death decision. Um, And I was very lucky that I happened to learn about it as it was recruiting, and I could actually get in and get one of those prize cohort slots, because they're not unlimited, which um, as many of you know here who designed these clinical trials. So, you know, when there's a handful... It was in what year before this had been
1: approved for... Any indications? Certainly not yours, because it was phase one. How was immunotherapy defined for you? Like, what? How was it? How how was it described as being different from all that? I could say horrible chemotherapy. Because
0: so how it was described to me again, like this was, you know, bedside. I was recuperating from a surgery, and I was just like, I was like, well, like, what do you got, Dr. Magazarr? Like, bring it on. us Let, let's talk about it. And he's like, well, this is different. Uh, in that, you know, it's, you may, it's different than how the other treatments have worked in the past. A lot of the treatments I would had before, uh, were meant to target or were more of a broad based attack, like a chemotherapy. Um, he, I was, it was explained to me that immunotherapy works by harnessing your own immune system by, you know, removing the block that prevents it from going after the cancer cells. Um, and that was, very intriguing to me. uh, This idea that my body could be retrained to do the job I was supposed to do. um, And I was told that it could have some resilient results, but that it was early. the immunotherapy drug that I, um, you know, ended up going on um, was nivolumab, and it had, you know, had some early success with other cancers, but had never been tested in Hodgkins before. So there was no guarantee to work for me, um, work for other Hodgkins patients, but, you know, I was you know, ready and willing to try it.
1: So from advocacy and from supporting other patients, you had an exquisite support team, as we can see in the video. You had your family and your friends. How did they, cause they can play a role in a care decision. How did they play a role in this? I, it's, it definitely seems like just meeting you for a short time that you're in charge, but, but, but um, how did, did they have
0: any opinions that kind of
1: made you rethink anything or?
0: Well, yeah, and I think anytime, and like coming from the very beginning, when you're presented with all of this new information diagnosis, you're already in this very overwhelmed, shocked, you know, shock, distressed state. It's very difficult to absorb and interpret all the new information that's being thrown at you, all the jargon, all the, the brand names. And over time, you develop a kind of a fluency. Um, they say, like, you know, every cancer patient gets, like, a PhD in cancer, each of the time they're done should have to do that to navigate it, but it certainly helps. Uh, And again, learning about different types of drugs and how they work, there's, you know, differing differing opinions. I think I was just, it was very lucky that I did have people that I could talk to and consult with and who would would back my decision and would, you know, help me from things like from, you know, home or wherever I was to get to... um, the research center, so that I could get my infusions, making sure that I was fed and that I was sleeping, um, that I was, you know, taking all the, you know, outside drugs that were required to keep this system running. Um, those are all really important aspects of managing your cancer diagnosis and being on any type of trial that are essential to the cancer patient being successful on that trial. If you're not well, if you're not sleeping, if you're not eating, if you're not enjoying life to some degree, it makes it very difficult to sustain that.
1: So, in a phase one trial, it's not necessarily quality of life and things like that aren't. But now we, thankfully, are able to tell people what to, they might expect as side effects, or, or you know, how long a treatment will last, et cetera. You didn't have any of that. Um, what would you share with patients now who are either thinking about going into a trial with one of these therapies, or, or, um, or
0: taking one? Like, what did you learn? Good question. I think for me, the the biggest takeaway and something that I would encourage you know, for every patient. And this is advice that's given to me, this idea of being your own best advocate, doing your own research, making your own informed decisions. Again, it's easier said than done, level of health literacy, so that you can develop an informed decision about making this type of choice. I think everyone should explore all available options to them, and know and accept that it is a risk. There's no guarantees that these particular drugs will work for, for you, your particular cancer, and that's okay. Um, And it's important to be aware of all those pieces going in and to, you know, have a, you know, a warm discussion with your oncologist and with your care team and make that decision together and to balance the needs of your family, of work, and other commitments that you might have in order to make this work. Um, I think that's something that I think about and I look to, you know, all these decision makers in this room here today that we can help facilitate those types of decisions and how can we help facilitate that knowledge gathering so that folks can go into this with you know properly managed expectations and feel you know excited about You know, the the possibility of, you know, receiving some benefit from it.
1: So, and this is different because, again, it's old school, but I had uh, one of the drugs in my chemo, and you may have had it too, is the Red Devil, which is actually in the book, one of the books they're giving away. And I had, you know, other patient advocates able to tell me that my hair was going to fall out between days 16 and 17. And it did, probably within like a three-hour window. (laughs) And that was helpful because enter a trial, they sign the consent, and now their hair's going to burst into flames. Right. <laughs> I mean, you'd really, it's really scary, as you've, you've really described. But with these drugs, it could be, I mean, this, they have this mysticism and this magical thinking that goes along with them, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But there's also, you didn't really know what to expect, but you'd really been through the ringer anyway is there were there any side effects that you felt like maybe should be described or collected or other than eating and sleeping you know which is all things we should all do whether we have cancer or not yeah. but we are not talking <laughs>
0: that but anything like yeah. from that experience absolutely so yeah, to your point The other prior treatment of like an established path, like you knew exactly what to expect. Like to your point, you could predict like the day that your hair might fall out. You would know exactly when in the cycle you would be the most nauseous. I would know exactly when I need to take my new pigeon shot because my white cell count was gonna drop. Um, All those pieces were very well-timed and very nicely laid out out for me in beautiful graphs. It was great, what a dream. For, for this, though, um, the side effects are a bit muckier, and knowing that a lot of them would be a, an immune response and would be different types of inflammation, um, those are things I wouldn't have typically known to look out for. I don't think the average patient would know to look out for it, uh, so I ended up having some pneumonitis. There were some to watch out for. We weren't sure if it was lymphoma or inflammation we tested it out. I also had like, my liver enzyme spike. Uh, they just shot up. And I've had symptoms of, like what they thought was a pulmonary embolism, but it ended up just being my liver um, results were going off the chart. They ended up going down on their own, and we weren't able to identify the cause so we attributed it to, the immunotherapy drug. But it's a lot of those um, pieces where you're guessing and checking and you're know, trying to uncover you know, what's happening to your body. And a lot of the time it may be related to the immunotherapy drug, but there's less of this, you know, one-to-one, um, you know, direct effect that you can, that you can measure all that the care team, you know, works with the patients to, you know, pay attention and observe those potential side effects. When you might feel slightly off that day, you might not have, again, outright your hair loss or, or nausea, but it's important to keep measuring those things and being comfortable sharing them with your care team, even if it seems like a small thing, because it could end up being a much bigger side effect.
1: So since your experience, and thankfully, and this is it's really, I just have to say it again, how special it is to get to sit next to you and hear what you went through. But um, <laughs> this, this, these therapies have been approved for a lot of indications. And many patients have had similar experiences. But a lot more have not. And I think in the patient community, as somebody who's, who's counseled people um, trying to decide whether to be in a clinical trial... For a little while, people wouldn't participate in a cancer trial unless it included. They knew they were going to get one of these immunotherapies because of stories like this. But it does not work for everybody, as I think um, everybody in this room is probably working on, and we don't necessarily know for whom it works best. Um, And then there's TV ads that promote this magical kind of um, concept. Um, What would you suggest to patients... um, who are considering, an I um, how would you talk to them about your experience, which is kind of you know the best that it could be? Because you know you get to look like this too. It's, it's, you know, and not only, not only right, yeah, like, <laughs> like actually, my I lost my hair and it came in white. I was 35 years old and it was this color. So so I didn't come out looking like that either. Um, so but anyway, um, so is there how how would you? Because information seeking, not all patients want a lot of information. But how do you find out about these therapies in the best way, and whether they're better for you or the right choice for you?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And again, I think it's it's great that there is knowledge that these these treatments exist. And I think you know, once you go past the surface level, you know, starting to understand you know how these different tr- drugs work, um, where they're available. If it makes sense for the type of you know disease profile that you have and the life stage that you're in, um, I think those are all factors that folks need to consider. Uh, I would recommend you know talking to some of the patient navigators, clinical at um, cancerresearchinstitute.com. There's also some fantastic um, you know patient conferences that they'll have where you can sit down next to experts and ask them all of your questions. Folks that you know know the science. I'm going on clinicaltrials.gov, while it's someone that does user experience is not, not the best example of <laughs> using Navigate website. However, it's a great database, and to kind of, and again, while it can be a bit of a um, steep learning curve, being able to understand what trials are out there and what the, you know, and the inclusion criteria is, whether or not you will be a, could be a potential candidate, what the potential side effects are, um, is really key. Starting to dive into some of the early research abstracts, um, I would recommend, I remember sitting in on this fantastic session during one of the patient conferences on how to read a research abstract so you can at a high level understand, you know, based on the initial results, you know, what was happening and is it this godsend drug or did they just see some initial promising results in a lab rat? It's important to be able to decipher and digest that type of information and to be able to sort out, not necessarily fact from fiction, but to be able to be a little discerning in some of the um, information that's out there. But it's a skill, and I think that's something that, again, I was very lucky to be able to work with the care team that could help me interpret these things. Not everyone has that. And again, I think that's why it's really critical with this community that we have here today thinking about how we can make it easier for people to make informed decisions about the types of drugs that are out there. So again, it's it's win-win. We want patients to feel um, empowered and to feel ready to take on the, you know, the the journey, the, the opportunity to get this drug and to you know have potentially life-saving treatment, but also the burden of going through a trial and the potential side effects. And then on the other side of the folks that are managing the clinical trial, you want to have a healthy pipeline of qualified candidates coming through the door who are going to you know, stick to your regimen, follow instructions, and continue to show up. And it's really in their best interest as well to have informed patients who know what they're getting into and know how to be the best patient possible. So you d- didn't finish
1: the trial. Well, so tell, So now you're in the trial. Yes. It's clearly working. Describe from that point and now your life now, like what follow-up looks like or if. It's a,
0: yeah, time. absolutely. So I had some really great, um, results early on. Um, it dramatically reduced my tumor burden. I was feeling so much better. I was you know out and about walking around, going to the city by myself, which again should be normal for you know a 23 year old girl. However, that was not where I was um, months prior. Um, so it was dramatic in terms of the change. Um, and I was on half. You could be on it for you know up to two years, and you have the option to um, get more drug it, should you need it. So I always had that in my back pocket, uh, which was a nice safety net. Uh, but I ended up going off the trial when I had uh, that liver enzyme spike, um, and they weren't able to identify a clear cause. So they're like, it must be the immunotherapy, so we'll just hold off. At that point, again, I was very lucky that the drug had already you know eliminated almost all if not all of the you know the active cancer cells in my body and was con- continuing to keep things in check so we went into this watch and wait period which is like can be your biggest nightmare if you're someone who like likes certainty likes getting the stamp that's like you're done that wasn't my situation at all i was like every cup every 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 4 weeks initially i would come in you know we'd do this, how are we doing still good okay we moved to like you know six to eight weeks, and then it became like once a quarter, and you know now I'm in you know once every six months follow up, and there's much less of this fear, though it's still there in the back of my mind. It can change at any time. Um, again, not no, we don't know the long-term um, efficacy of these drugs yet. Hoping to keep this running and to make sure that this this continues to work, but um, those six-month follow-ups. There's a lot of space in between opportunity for a lot of freedom but again with that you're not always sure um, if that cough that you that you develop is normal cold or, or something else
1: yeah that's kind of the case in 25 years it's kind of not totally there but uh, as my husband said once you're a Tickle, you can never be a cucumber again. But I've been worked up for brain mets liver mats. I mean, it's just, you have a toe, your toe hurts. And and
0: you're like, oh my god, what's but, but for these
1: drugs, it's like there's a lot less known about them. I have a, a very close friend who was also miraculously cured of a rare esophageal tumor. And um, she got it on an expanded access program, not through a trial. There was no trial available, and they didn't know how long she should stay on it. So when she was NED, she continued to go for therapy for three years uh-huh. because there was a, and that was, that ended probably two years ago. Um, but you, you have follow-up every six months for as long? You know, for us, yeah. it used to be five years. Potentially, but yours is.
0: Yeah, we're kind of feeling it out. It's it's kind of it's kind of funny. I, I go in and when I see my oncologist, we're just like, so what's going on? What's up? We have like a little social visit, and again, because there isn't really an established protocol for this. We were just like, should we see each other in six months? I guess. That sounds good. Cool. Stop by, let's get a hug, and then we'll head out. But again, we're kind of just taking it as it comes. It's exciting to be on the forefront of this for Hodgkins, being one of the first people who received this drug in, in this group. It's also, again, a little terrifying knowing that there isn't you know, an entire path of you know data in front of me um, that can kind of direct me a little bit and tell me what to look out for um and again i'm very happy and fortunate that i'm you know in a position where you know even going to the physician you know once every 6 months isn't super disruptive to my day-to-day life you know i can work now i have decent health insurance um i'm you know very lucky and very privileged that i don't i can you know get my ct scan and, and not worry about it um, and that's something that, again, not all patients, when they're navigating can- the cancer uh, therapies, a trial or post uh, in terms of follow-up, um, have, uh, and they have something that they can manage. So I think that's also a really key thing to to take away.
1: So it's it's a privilege to get to talk to you and ask you questions. I think we have a minute. So does anybody have a pressing question? And I think we could probably talk the organizers into extending a little bit if anybody wants to ask anything of Ariella who's graciously here to answer just about anything
2: I think it's there. oh it's on now okay Ariella first of all thank you for your courage to get up and talk, tell your story for uh, others who may benefit from it um, my quick question is it, I'll go back to something you said in the beginning you touched on a little bit. <clears throat> It sounds like you had to come across the trial on your own through your research. It doesn't sound like anyone in the industry from the medical field came to you and said, hey, there's this great new trial that we think you would be a potential you know, patient for, candidate for. Did I understand that right or no?
0: So, my oncologist did um, when I was in the hospital for um, a surgery, um, a complication from uh, another chemotherapy I had been on. So, it was something that was explained to me. There were times, though, where um, Sloan did not have a trial that was available for me. That was more so in in 2012. And so, they would recommend a, a couple of different trial options, and I would have to choose which, again, it was fantastic that they were able to you know, recommend certain options to, for me, but I had to make that decision myself um, because they were at various different trial sites. Um, they said they were you know, pretty similar in terms of potential efficacy. Um, and again, not all patients you know, have works at a research hospital and that has, you know, first VIP access to uh, a phase one clinical trial for Hodgkins. I happen to be very lucky to get one of those precious prize slots. Um, Earlier on in 2012, when I was doing some of my own clinical trial research and making my own decisions, there wasn't a guarantee that there would be a spot available um, in a a given trial. And I typically wouldn't find that out until after I had called the facility, potentially scheduled a visit, and again, that can be really difficult and really daunting for a lot of patients.
2: All right. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I would agree that sometimes it depends on where you are, what you're located next to, what your physicians are aware of. I think a general awareness history, and, and a lot of that's due to HIPAA. I mean, we know, we know these patients. We know where some of them are. But yet, getting them linked up into a trial has been difficult many times. So thank
0: you. Absolutely. Thank you. Good question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the IO360 2020 conference. The next IO360 meeting will take place virtually February 23rd through 26th, 2021. For more information, visit www.io360summit.com.